With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Well, you've been uh, clamoring for it because we had parts one and two. This is part three with Shaka Smart. Okay. So when we last talked with Shaka, he had just finished his first year at VCU. His second year was the final four year. Uh, But I think it's really interesting to start at the point of, hey, end of your first year. Because end of your first year, a lot of times it's your first year as head coach. You self-assess, you assess your roster, you assess your coaching staff. How How did they go from really high quality mid-major program to first four to final four. It's all in here. Enjoy. Here's my conversation with Shaka. When we last caught up, we had ended year one at VCU and you mentioned how much you, you love that group, right? Um, But all people remember about VCU is year two, right? You said your favorite Two favorite clubs were year three, right, after the Final Four and this current team at Marquette. Um, you get done your first year. You've been a head coach for a year now. And usually when you come in, guys like, you know, when well, I get my own guys and we got my guys on the way, sometimes you have to get rid of a couple of guys to make space. What was the end of your first year like at BCU? There was definitely, there was some of that. Uh, this was before the transfer portal era. So it was mostly, uh, you know, high school guys that you brought in, but we had, we had signed several guys. And then there was a couple guys at the end of year one that probably weren't the best cultural fits or we weren't the best cultural fit for them. However you want to put it. Um, in fact, I'll never forget Mike Rhodes. I won't say the name of the player, but Mike Rhodes who's a current head coach at VCU. He was our our top assistant at the time. Now, when the season got done, we got back, um, came back from the Final Four, um, and he came in my office and he said, he said, listen, I love it here. I love working with you. Love the guys. VCU's a great place. But either he's got to go or I got to go. <laughs> he was talking about one of the players. Uh, so, you know, there was, there was definitely some – a little bit of turnover, but the majority of that team came back. The one guy that we lost um, that, you know, we uh, was, was a terrific player. It was a guy by the name of Larry Sanders. He was ended up sure. being 15th pick in the draft. So he left after his junior year. And it's interesting because the team that ended up going to the Final Four, um, you know, we didn't have Larry. So it, 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 if uh, – if we had him, we probably would have won more games in a regular season, but I don't know that we would have had the same uh, postseason run. What is that like to go from 
assistant to head coach in terms of the, the relationships, right? Because, and, and again, I know you have really good relationships with all your players, probably more so than a lot of head coaches, some because your age, some because your background, some just because your personality, but there is a, there's a different, different sort of thing, right? There's a different sort of relationship. What do you learn when you're a head coach from one year about how, about how those relationships have to evolve and even change because you're a head coach? Well, I think the biggest thing, I had never been the assistant coach that was, was the heavy. Uh, when I, you know, I was, I was only an assistant coach for a relatively short amount of time. And when I was in Florida, I was, I was by far the third assistant, you know, that we had Rob Lanier and Larry Shiat. And um, when I was at Clemson, I was the youngest assistant. So I was kind of always a young guy. And so becoming a head coach, I had to get comfortable with the fact that as a head coach, there may be a little bit more separation uh, sometimes. And you also got to be the bad guy a little bit more than I was accustomed to, uh, which is not my natural personality. I don't really like being the bad guy, but, you know, you do it when you have to. Yeah, it's like it's like being the, the boss at a, any job. Like now, suddenly you got to hire and fire people like that's not that's not fun. Yeah. Right? And 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 uh, hold them accountable. But, you know, the thing that's been interesting is over the years, <clears throat> kind of learned that, you know, the best players, the good players, they want accountability. You know, they want yeah. you to help them be better. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the number one thing that they they want from you is if you can help them grow and improve then you're adding, adding value for them. How do you identify somebody who's a cultural fit? You're a VCU. How do you identify that? I mean, I wasn't as good at identifying that at that point as I am now. I mean, it's been a real evolution. We have uh, very specific characteristics that we're looking for now that, that come out of uh, a culture document that we created several years ago. But at VCU, it was more just spending time um, trying to ask questions. Um, I think I told you last time, Dave Tellup was a good friend of mine, uh, who was at that point in the high school recruiting space. And, uh, he was really good at just helping teach me about, um, what he called eyes, ears, and numbers. So, you know, what do your eyes see? What do your ears hear? And then what do the numbers tell you? Um, to as kind of a, a system to go about scouting. But your, your guys were like junkyard dogs, right? Like that, that's, again, this is maybe my perception of it is felt like your guys, you're hungry, right? Sometimes a little bit undersized. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're at BCU because you're missing something, you know, maybe a little bit smaller, maybe not a good enough shooter. Maybe it's academically, right? So, so that's but, one of the things that when I first got there, um, I know I keep bringing him up, but he really, really helped us. So Dave Tellup came up and we did it. He did a profile of uh, all conference players in the CAA, which is the league that we were in at the time. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, what was it about the ACC or, you know, the Big East or the SEC that they didn't want these guys, but then they ended up being really, really good players. So Eric Maynard, for instance, who's the best player ever to play at VCU, um, was really skinny in high school. He wasn't a particularly good shooter in high school. 
and he played on a lesser known AAU team. And that combination got him under recruited. I mean, there was ACC schools that dabbled and looked and said, ah, nah, you know, not quite. And he ends up coming to VCU and being the all-time leading scorer and assist man. So those were the type of guys that we were trying to go get. You know, one, the guy that, um, you know, epitomized our style of play in my time at VCU more than anyone was Briante Weber. Um, And he played four years. Uh, His senior year was probably the best team we ever had at VCU during my time. But he tore his ACL um, late January of his senior year. And then Travion Graham, the other terrific player we had, uh, sustained a high ankle sprain in January of his same year. And so we weren't. But you mentioned Briante Weber, right? So, like, he was unbelievable defensive. Like, un- he one of those guys that the it's best. not just winning 50-50 balls. He just take the ball from dudes. Just His take- instincts were Listen, remarkable. Doug, I'm going to tell you a funny story about that. I'm at Texas. You know, I think it's my first or second year. And we're at a recruiting dinner. And so we're with a recruit, and the, there's a game on TV. It's Briante and, and one of the umpteen teams he played for. He moved around a lot against the Boston Celtics and Kyrie Irving at the time. And I said to the recruit, I said, listen, every time he plays against someone, the first time he plays them, he takes the ball from them. Um, And and I said, watch, he's about to take the ball from Kyrie Irving. And the guy's like, nah, he can't. Kyrie Irving is literally as good a ball handler as there is in the world. And he goes, and you can look it up. You can you you can go on YouTube. He goes and he plucks Kyrie Irving, and he goes and lays the ball up. And Kyrie Irving actually kind of hustled back and tried to block the shot. And uh, you know, obviously, he only did it once, but that's the type of player he was. To your point, the quickest hands I've ever seen. But to your point about recruiting, so how we recruited him, he had like no scholarship offers. I think maybe Norfolk State. Where where, where, where is he? Where did he grow up? He's coming out of the 757, which is uh, is kind of the, the area code for the Tidewater area, Norfolk, Virginia, Hampton Roads, Virginia, Chesapeake, Virginia, uh, an area, you know, Alan Irison's from that area, area, an area really well known for great, you know, a lot of great talent coming out of there for football and basketball. Michael Vick from that area. Um, and so he he ends his senior year and he's got like nothing or next to nothing. And Mike Rhodes says, hey, you know, we should send this guy, you know, have him go to prep school. He could maybe be a guy for us in the next class. And so we set him up to go to Fork Union Academy, which I'm sure you've heard of. Fletcher Errett was a coach at the time. And uh, he comes into our our team camp and our elite camp at the time. It's a Saturday and a Sunday. And he's just like, Locking everybody up. I mean, we had guys there that were probably a higher level than we could recruit and guys we wouldn't end up being able to recruit. And he's out playing them and taking the ball from them. So we end up offering a scholarship on the spot. Amazing. Um, Okay. So you get ready for your second year. How had you changed as a coach, as a head coach from having one year under your belt? I think each year 
this is a generalization, but uh, each year I've probably tried to control less. Um, you know, I think my natural type is to try to control everything, but I learned for sure in that first year that there's so much more outside of my control than I, than I realized. Um, so I think going into the second year, we had an older team, Joey Rodriguez, um, and, and his classmates were seniors. Um, and Joey in particular was really, really smart. And he also was very opinionated. Yes. <laughs> and um, I just learned like there's certain battles that it doesn't make sense to pick with 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 those guys. And uh, so I would say that's probably the biggest way I changed from year one to year two, just a little bit less trying to control everything. You, you, it was at the start of the year. You beat Wake. You lose a close one to Tennessee. You beat UCLA. Okay, what what did you think about your team? Like, did you think I got something special here? What were your what were your thoughts on on your group? Well, I, I, the thing that we learned in the first month or so that year was we got a group that really is motivated to play the big boys. Um, you know, they 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 get up for playing big names and guys that were highly recruited and teams that didn't recruit them. And so that was, you know, something we learned then. But as you know, then when you get in conference play and we're in the CAA, um, that doesn't apply as much. And, you know, fortunately, we were able to make the NCAA tournament and it really, really helped us in the NCAA tournament. And then in the Final Four, it really hurt us uh, because we're back to playing a mid Yeah. Um, I'll never forget. Uh, and they played before us. I think we played on a Sunday and Butler and Florida played on a Saturday. But um, that was that was a you know regional final game. You know, we were playing Kansas and they were uh, Butler and Florida were playing where we had got we had a couple guys from Florida, including Joey Rodriguez. If they would have won that game. Um, and, and this I'm not saying we would have won, but. Uh, the guys psychologically, there would have been, you know, more a lot more there for them because that's something that they really, really ate up. It's interesting. I, I the bracket. I remember the bracket buster being the game that got you in the NCAA tournament, right? Because you lost to ODU in the championship game, but you had beaten Wichita on the road in the on a bracket buster Saturday, and like that was, and that was. The real the idea what Bracketbuster should have been was it should have been VCU against UCLA or against a, a mid mid level ACC team because that's really what who you're competing against is these teams that you know you're better than but you don't get a shot at in February and you know essentially you eliminate you eliminate Wichita State but it did it propelled you to tournament what was the what was that selection Sunday like waiting. So it was, I told you about the last one. So this one, the, the week leading up to it, I had called all the committee members of the NIT selection committee, <laughs> not the NCAA, the NIT. And, you know, the NIT selection committee at that point was a bunch of uh, uh, kind of retired coaches and administrators, you know, guys that have been around it for a long, long time. And so I called these guys. I said, listen, last year we had the best RPI in the country 
not to make the NIT. I said, we're hoping to make the NCAA tournament, but if something happens, we really, really would like to be in the NIT. It's just funny. And so I made the decision for the selection show that we weren't going to watch it together because we had some really volatile personalities. And um, I just, I didn't know what would happen if we didn't get selected. So um, in our office, it was just me. I mean, our coaching staff was kind of spread out in the office, but in, in my office, it was me and our five freshmen. I had those guys come in and, uh, you know, watch the show with me. And we sat there and we watched the show. And I think in one of the first two regions, UAB came up. And UAB was it was one of the teams that played in the first four. Um, right. And they had and beaten we, you. They had beaten you by three, too, at, at their place. Yes. And, Doug, we were up in that game by maybe 16, 18 points in the second half. They came back. They had a good team. Uh, came back and beat us. And so when that came up, it was like, dang. You know, like, <laughs> like if we just win that game. Um, so it gets to the last region you know and there's basically one more slot that we you know we could be that that other this was the first year of the first four um we could be in that other first four game and it just it was like a i don't know it was like slow motion like it came up and it said it said georgetown and then the, then the you know uh, it's like the, uh, the, the 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 slash right. Well, it said Georgetown, and then the next line is like Greg Gumble <coughs> or you know whoever's unveiling it, and it says VCU, and it just everything just goes, everybody just goes nuts. Like everyone's running around the office, chest bumping. It was like just euphoria. It was administrators running in, coaches from different places, and we're all just running around celebrating like crazy. And then, like ten minutes later, we're like, "Who do we play?" Like, <laughs> we didn't even know. Like, we didn't even wait for the slash. Yes. Like, it was BCU slash USC, but we didn't even wait for that. And so that's that's how we found out that we were in. And then, you know, when you're in the first four, it it happens really quick. Like, you're playing yeah. on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then if you win, you play on Thursday play on or Friday. Friday. Yeah, Friday. Yeah. And so we went we went Wednesday in Dayton against USC. Um, it was a typical first NCAA tournament game where like everybody's nervous and, you know, nobody can score for a while. And, and second half, we kind of, kind of hit our groove and started playing better. Um, then we went Friday in the United center. Hold on, hold on. Don't, you're like, don't, don't, don't skip. It's too good a story. Just like, well, <laughs> BUSC and Fox sports radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're, okay, so you're pressed at the time. One press, two presses, three presses. Like, what, what is the difference in, in the, the pressure that you apply? Basically two, uh, man-to-man, full court, and then uh, diamond, just diamond. one, one, two, one, one. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but, but there's, there, there's different types of man press. Okay. You got a guy in the ball or you got a, a guy safety? Uh, well, we would do both. I mean, normally a guy in the ball. Um, and then sometimes we would take the guy off the ball and have him deny the point guard. Um, USC actually at the time had this really little quick guard. I can't remember his name. But he's from Detroit. And so that was something that we tried to use on him. Um, but, yeah, we USC, played. USC's point guard was uh uh was it marcus simmons or uh, no no not marcus simmons it was uh dante smith yeah really, dante smith really little like five nine five ten yep they all said they all said vucevic on yep. that team. and yep so our best player was jamie skeen um and jamie skeen went on a heck of a run i mean he outplayed some phenomenal players in that NCAA tournament starting. Well, he was a, he, but he was also a stretch big too. Right. So like, so yes. Vucevic couldn't come out and those guys aren't used to coming out and covering. Yeah. So, so you got him sped up and you got their big coming out and covering. You got him completely out of whack and you know, you you got, you got size and length on their point guard and they, they can kind of do, do nothing. Now the, the diamond versus the man, what's the determination to when you're in what? Uh, we would just go back and forth. I mean, whatever we call. Um, I like the man-to-man more, personally. Yep. Um, but the the thing about the diamond press is one way or the other, it's going to get the style of play going. Like, either they're going to they're gonna shoot quick um, and, and or you're going to turn them over or they're going to lay it up or dunk it, but it's going to go – it's going to get the game going fast. Um, you know, as we went in our time at VCU, we played more and more – we call it double fist, which is man to man. Um, Run and jump. And yeah, and that, and that, if they break the press, a lot of times can slow the game down. It's like a long possession. Yes. Um, so it's kind of a grinding thing. But um, yeah, the diamond really gets the game going. BUSC. Okay. So now you got it like, and that thing, like you said, it turns over quick. But I always thought, again, as a player, like I remember when I, we played in the Big 12 tournament. I thought that first game was actually helpful because, like you said, you get all the jitters out. So then you go and play in the first round, and you guys have already played a game. 
you guys have already won a game, right? And and your VCU, you kind of kids got to let their nuts hang anyway, right? So you go play Georgetown, um, and you're in Chicago. So you're from Dayton to Chicago. You go to play Georgetown. What do you remember about the game? I just remember our guys being so <coughs> driven and motivated. Georgetown it's in the same region as VCU. It's about 90 minutes from 90 miles from DC to Richmond. And, you know, our guys were just so excited and motivated to play those guys. We got into Chicago at three in the morning after leaving Dayton. And there was just such an energy that they had. And we started the game and it was apparent that, you know, we, we were really going to be able to play fast and our guys just had great energy. So we, we went at them pretty good. I don't remember the final score, but I, uh, we, you know, we won all those games. The- 74-56. Yeah. yeah That's we, called a no-doubter. Yeah, our guys flew around pretty good in that one. Okay. Then Purdue. Again, like Purdue in Chicago, hour and a half from their campus, right? And, you know, like Purdue comes in like Big Ten, kind of regal, big dudes. Um, I mean, same like here's the thing that I think you guys benefited from and that style benefit from nobody in the Big Ten plays that way, right? Nobody plays that way. They haven't, none of your guys, they haven't heard of any of your guys. So there's a, and your guys, like you said, it's respecting. But more than anything, you're going to give as good a coach as Matt Painter is 24 hours or 48 hours to prep for a style that they don't ever play against. Whereas you guys play the same regardless, doesn't matter. Like that's kind of the benefit to that style. It it really is. And uh, you know, we started the game. They had Etwan Moore. Um, they had you know, Robbie Hummel was hurt. Um, and they had a great big in Juwan Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the game started and they made a few threes early. The game was kind of going back and forth, and it was kind of playing the way we wanted to play, and they but they were making shots, but we felt like, hey, this is good. You know, let's let's just kind of play the if we can play the game our way. And then as the game went on, our guys just kind of kept getting stronger and stronger. And we scored a lot of points that day. I, I don't remember the final 94. score. Yeah. Um, which is that was a lot for us, you know. Um, and it was just it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was like, wow, we're playing Purdue in Chicago. And um, you know, my grandfather lived in Chicago my whole life. And, you know, unfortunately, he, he was on his deathbed at, at that time. He ended up passing away a week or two later. Um, and so it was just a it was a weird it was really emotional. Day for me, because he had taken me to a game in the in in old Chicago Stadium uh, to see the Bulls way back when I was a young kid. And your mom's mom or your dad's mom? My my mom's dad. I mean, mom, your mom's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he was more of a baseball guy. He took me to a lot of Cubs games, but it was just being in the United Center, but he wasn't there. Everything I had spent, I'd been in Chicago millions of times, always with him. And, uh, but just winning and then winning that game, it was, uh, it was emotional, but. It was crazy. I mean, the first time ever for VCU being in the Sweet 16, and those guys were just so confident. Fun group to be around. 
what what were you like at that time in terms of standing up, sitting down, talking with your assistants, like processing? Because I'm sure at some point in time they're hitting shots, and you're like, I mean, I'm just wondering what 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 you're like during those moments. Yeah, you know, I've never sat down. Like I, literally, I've never never sat down in a game, and I think I get that from Keith Dambrot, who I work for at Akron. Um, but I just, I just kind of antsy, like, I'm, I, I'm, that's the last thing I want to do is sit down. Um, but we had a great staff and, and those guys were constantly in my ear, but it's, at the same time, as you know, Doug, when, when you have a good team, that's on a run, uh, the coaches, the head coach and the assistant coaches, the biggest thing that they can do is step back and not yeah. overcoach. Let them go. Let them yeah. go. And that's absolutely you- what we did. Are you a rotation guy or do you go by feel? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, try to get, we played a lot of guys on during that run. And, you know, again, all the games other than the Florida state game in the NCAA tournament, we won by double figures. Uh, the Kansas game did get close. What do you have the Kansas? Cause it did get close. There was a, it got really close. Yeah. It got close when those guys were trying to, <laughs> trying to mess us around uh but yeah no we played we played a pretty good healthy rotation we had freshmen that we were playing uh we started a freshman at center even though our best lineup was jamie Skeen when we went a little bit smaller at, at the five so yeah we played a pretty good rotation so you go now you go to the sweet 16 florida state now florida state uh they, they can play fast they can play like there's a different level that was a athletic talented long team right yeah right what what was the prep for that one like so mike jones was one of our assistant coaches he's a head coach at unc greensboro now and uh we joke all the time because he's a little bit in scouting he can sometimes be a glass half empty guy Uh, i think he's gotten better now that he's a head coach but you know it was like we're getting ready for florida state and, and he's like ah I don't know what we're going to do against these guys. Like we don't match up very well with them. They've got six guys, six ten or over. Um, you know their guards are huge, and I'm like, Mike, they got to deal with us too. You know, yeah. and so um, our guys just fought and battled. Um, they, it, that was a kind of a grind of a game because athletically they they could more than you know match up with us. And then size-wise, we struggled. But, um, you know, our guys, Jamie Skeen, you know, really it was a huge – he was a dude, you know. So when you have a guy like that and you're at like a mid-level school, you got to really take advantage of him against those schools that are really athletic. Now you play Kansas, okay, and uh, they had – they had won it, what, two years before, I think? They won it two years before. Um, and they're more, again, of a kind of traditional team as opposed to the athleticism of Florida State. What do you remember about that, that, that the Kansas game? I remember a lot. I remember uh, before the game, uh, in the you know, the captains go to the center circle, and they had the Morris twins. So that, that, that was their two captains. And, and we had Joey Rodriguez and – I think Brandon Rozelle, maybe Ed Nixon. And uh, 
one of the Morris twins says to Joey Rodriguez, he said, hey, you guys have had a nice little run, but it's about to end today. And uh, Joey's like, yeah, okay. And you'd have to know Joey, but he he absolutely I know Joey. Yeah. He absolutely has a little man's complex. Yeah. <laughs> so so we go back in the locker room the last time before coming out. And the players are in there before any of the coaches get there, but I could kind of hear Joey's giving this pep talk like who the hell do these guys think they are saying that to us? We're going at their necks. And it was like they were just charged up because the one of the Morris twins made his comment. And so we really didn't have to say much. And uh, we started the game. We were down six nothing. And it was like it was like a varsity high school team playing against the freshman team. Like we just size wise, we were we were, you know, overmatched. Um, but then we just started making threes. And uh, Brandon Rozell was probably our best outside shooter, one of our best. He started just raining threes. I remember he made, I think, his second three, and he turned around to Kansas's bench, and he just looked at him and nodded his head. And so we were able to build a pretty good lead. But then, like you said, Kansas made a run to start the second half. I felt like there were some calls that were a little off. Uh, that was just me. And it was good officials. Who who is no who's officiating the game? So it was Mike Eads. Yeah. It was Tony Green. And I believe Ted Valentine, I believe, was the third one. And so there's this picture that uh, you know, we sometimes text with the, some of the coaches that were on that staff. There's this picture of me and it looks like I'm like charging Mike Eats. <laughs> yeah. Um and I you know I, I don't know if they caught it caught it or whatever but I end up getting a technical foul. We were up 6 or 8. I got a technical foul. And Joey Rodriguez was so mad at me like for giving them two points. Like come on coach, what the hell? Um but our guys did a great job. What did you say? I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry, Joe. I mean, <laughs> no, no. I mean, did, did you did you curse? Like, why'd you get a technical? I, I, I never understand the technical foul in a big game. Like, well, I'm, I'll tell you this. Here's my theory on this. I think every head coach has a there's an expectation of that head coach by the officials. And so it's a range that the officials kind of allow that guy to be in. Mm-hmm. But if it's a fiery, crazy head coach that always dog curses the officials, his range is different. And so he's allowed to do that more. If it's a coach that doesn't normally do that, but then he gets a little bit more fiery or more aggressive, he's more likely to get a T like I got in that moment. I mean, you and I both know, and we won't name any names, but I mean, there's coaches that just some of the words that they use to these guys would warrant a technical foul from most other coaches like 10 times in a game. Uh, so I got outside of my range, I guess. <laughs> well, also, I mean, <laughs> the reality is you weren't a known dude at that time, right? I mean, he's not Bill Self and you're second, second, year, second year head coach. So it, it's not, I didn't say it was fair, but it's the reality. It's reality for sure. But it's, I, it's I, I reality. The important thing is when I when I got the technical, our team really 
kind of rallied around each other and, you know, played great down the stretch. So you didn't get it on purpose. You didn't do the, I'm going to get it on purpose and get some calls. I've never gotten a technical on purpose. I, I don't believe in that. Um, you beat Kansas. You're going to a fi- first four to final four. And it's the first time they've done the final four. Now, not the first CAA team because George Mason had done it you know, previously. But for you, what do you remember about those moments after going to the final, when you, when you, when you won the game? I was just, I mean, as you know, I mean, you've done a lot of winning in your time. Like it's, there's I haven't no, won that game. I never won that game. There, there's just no way to describe it. Um, and, and it's the best part of being on a team is like when you go do something special with a group of people together, there's truly like this connectivity and this bond that, you know, nobody can mess with. And so it's just so much fun. Um, we went back to Richmond. We flew back from San Antonio. It was a Sunday night and we got back at like two in the morning. And so we were driving back to our arena and, and somebody said, Hey, go in the arena. There's some fans in there. So we go kind of down the stairs to go to the arena. The arena is completely packed at two in the morning. I mean, complete VCU's arena seats about 7,600 people, completely packed. And it's like an impromptu pep rally when we got back. So the amount of energy there in Richmond, it was crazy. And I think in some ways it did work against us a little bit on our prep sure. <laughs> that week going into the Final Four um, because – those guys probably didn't sleep and, you know, we tried to manage it and we tried to, you know, do the things coaches do, but everyone was just on like level 10 in terms of their excitement. What's amazing is you play Butler and I mean, in terms of talent, like the year before you got Gordon Hayward, you know, they still had Shelvin Mack, whatever. But that year, I mean, Matt Howard and Shelvin Mack are their best players. Mike, Matt Howard's like 6'5". I don't know if he can dunk. Amazing college player. Uh, you mentioned, you know, your connection with Brad. And there's some similarities kind of in your, in your path a little bit. And what, what was – so you're, you're trying to calm down. You're trying to manage that. You got to prep for the Final Four. What's the process like? I mean, it, it was – kind of more of the same for us as coaches, but I think the hardest thing was getting our guys to um, understand that we hadn't reached a finish line. Yeah. I think, you know, college basketball, is, it's interesting. And, and I'm glad that I'm glad that college basketball is like this. Making the final four is such a big, big deal. Whereas like, if you think of like the NBA, it's either like you win the finals or yeah. you, know, you, did, you didn't, you know, you didn't have a good, good enough season. Even and, the sweet 16 is a big thing. Like the sweet 16 is like a mini final four. No question. So you are celebrating accomplishments, right? Yeah. And I, and I think that's absolutely, absolutely how it should be so that more players and teams feel like, you know, we did something. Now the flip side of that is, and I think this is probably the case for anyone that makes the final four. It's a little bit of mental gymnastics if you've never done it before as a player right. or as a coach, right. especially as a player when, when you're young. Just that, hey, we got a game in a few days 
And we're actually 80 minutes away from winning the whole thing if we can play well. Um, and I just I don't think that we played as well as we could have. But OK, you know, so if you could do something differently, what would what would it be? Oh, man, I would do a million things differently. Uh, OK, defend Shelvin Mack better. He was a straight up dude in that game. Um, right. You know, maybe we should have put two on the ball with him. Um, you know, we we didn't shoot the ball very well at all. We, we played in, I think, what's now NRG. I think the Final Four is there this year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Houston. Yeah, that, uh, was the, that was the year that because of it, remember last time they played in Houston was when Nova won at the buzzer against uh, Carolina. But because the shooting was so bad that people were like, oh, you can't, this, this dome, because it it's a terrible setup, right? Middle of this gigantic dome all dark behind it makes it look like the hoops are like five feet high. It's a weird one. But there was a thought that that arena or that stadium caused people to shoot poorly because of your final four. So, so yeah, because the the championship game was like, what was it like 40 something or 30 something? Yeah. Um, But we had made 11 threes a game in each of our five wins. And so you asked what I would do differently, kind of knowing what I know now. We shot the ball pretty poorly from outside against Butler. Um, I, I would have just really, really overemphasized offensive rebound. We didn't have the greatest offensive rebounding team, but we, I think, you know, anytime you're missing threes, the number one antidote is going to get the ball back. And yeah. as we all know, a missed three can go anywhere. So, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the exact number. Do you, do you but, but okay, so here's a hard one with pressure. The hard one with pressuring is you got to have defensive balance, but when the ball goes in, you're pressing, right? So how do you, how do you have, how do you have balance? Like when you're, when you're pressing, how do you make sure your guards are back when they got to be up in the press? Our guys were unbelievable at that. Um, and, and, and that team was pretty good, but you know, the subsequent VCU teams, Briante Weber and some of those guys later, they were superhuman at being able to do both. And I can't really tell you why. We just practiced it. We worked on it. Um, so it wasn't a huge, huge concern. I'm sure teams felt like they could run on us, but we never felt like it hurt us. What about in terms of the shooting at Re- – it was Reliant then. Yeah. What about the practice time? Like if you go back – because you know what happens a lot of that practice time is nobody wants to actually practice anymore at the Final Four practice. It used to be guys would put on full practices and it'd be like a clinic. Now guys just go up there, dunk, shoot, and they go over to the they go over to another gym and they practice. Would you if you did it again? Would you spend all your time at the arena just shooting? Probably so. Yeah, I mean we we did a lot of shooting, but we probably should have done even more. It's also some probably some fatigue that comes with it as well. I, I think the number one thing, two things, one. We were not playing a big name, but we were playing a great team. Um, And then the second thing being, I think, with all that we had accomplished, um, I think we maybe 5%, 10% didn't have quite the same edge. So when you combine those two things and the fact that we're playing a terrific Butler team, Shelvin Mack and Howard played their butts off, um, you know, we came up short. What is it like to to try and regroup after that? After that, you know, you get done, you win the, you lose the game. G- give me, give me what's going on for you personally, program, 
I'm sure you're getting offered jobs as well, right? What, what was that, that those next couple of weeks like in terms of regrouping? Well, first of all, the, the immediate aftermath is, and I, I feel this way at the end of any season where you really enjoy the group, but obviously we had been on such an intense run with that team is like a, it's a really, really strong depression for a short amount of time. And, and I don't want to say, I don't want to belittle, you know, depression that people have in, in the world, but you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. because again, everybody's different, but most of us, we play and coach because we just love being part of something special with others where we can kind of lose ourselves in that, that, that team ego or whatever you want to call it. And then when you lose, or, or even if you win your last game, it's, it's over and it's just, a, it's very abrupt. So that was the first thing. And then once you kind of get over that, you start to kind of move on to what's next. Um, man, I was never taking any job that year. I could promise you that, like, forget that. And I remember a couple of our assistants, I won't say their names, were like mad at me because <laughs> I didn't want to take a specific job. And I was like, hey, listen, you take whatever job you want to take. But this is like, I'm going I'm to do what I want to do. And I want to be at VCU. <laughs> but why? What? Because the, 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 I, I, but before, like, before you get the answer, like, again, for people outside, like, you could double your salary, triple your salary, right? There's always a limitation at a VCU in people's minds. Why, why did you want to stay? Well, number one, I never had money when I was a kid, so I've never made any 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 big decision for money. Now it's it's easy to say now. Um, number two, I felt like VCU was the place to meet to be. Like I I genuinely felt that way, so I didn't really see the limitations. And then number three, most importantly, I'm not leaving these guys after we just went to the final four. Like that, that that's that's insane. We just went to the final four together and we had Joey and some other guys, Jamie moving on, but we had probably, I don't know, seven, eight guys coming back. And it's like, we just went through this unbelievably intense experience together. And then I'm going to leave. Like, I don't know. That's just foreign to me. I know it happens and I don't judge anyone else for doing it, but that is completely foreign. Last one for this, this, this part. Okay. How do you avoid the Naismith complex? And I don't know if you ever heard that term. Okay. It's one that we gave to a specific coach who had gone to the Fauna Four. And, you know, you go to the Fauna Four and suddenly you're a genius. Right? Oh, you're a genius. And everybody tells you how great you are. And every gym you walk into in the spring and recruiting, like you're the guy that went to the Fauna Four. You're, the, you're young. Everybody likes you. You play a different style. Like they, they treat you like you're somehow way smarter now than you were five games ago when you snuck into the NCAA tournament or six games ago when you got in the NCAA tournament, how did you personally avoid the ego trip that it is when people start treating you like you're James Naismith and you invented the game? I think just the people around you, uh, in my case, you know, my wife, um, my daughter was born, uh, that, that same year, you know, that's, that's the most humbling experience there is. Um, 
I also think, Doug, the the one year I spent around Billy Donovan was really helpful in that because he models that better than anyone. I mean, he, you know, two-time national champion, all the great things that he's done. And he's always like searching to get better and grow. And it it always struck me being around him, like, you don't even know that you're Billy Donovan, man. Like <laughs> you don't even know the way that people feel about you. Um, so I think being around him was a, a phenomenal example for me. Um, and I actually thought you meant a different complex, which is, you know, one that's really, really hard is you just kind of feel like, well, we should do it again, you know, every year. Like, <laughs> And just because you have a team that maybe you line up on paper and is just as good or better or, you know, better on offense or better on defense than that team. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, uh, you know, something you learn over the years. But Form, former Marquette coach, and he's, he's definitely a different personality than you, Kevin O'Neill. And I don't think he coined it. I've heard people say he got it from Calipari or he got it from Larry Brown or whatever. But he would always say, winning is hard. Like, winning is hard. It's just hard. It's just, it's a, it's a very easy expression and it's a very complex thing, but it's like you, like you point out. I mean, how many teams have you had that are better than that BCU team, right? Uh, Oklahoma State, I can tell you, my team was better than, I think, the 95 Final Four team. 94 Final Four team was better than 95, but it just doesn't work that way. You know, guys hurt, guys in his feelings, guys got something going on. You screw up a rotation. Guy gets into foul trouble. Like a million different things can happen. And well, and then that's not even to mention the Robbie Hummel was hurt when we played Purdue. You know, right. maybe if he plays, it's different. Um, you know, it, it's we all are so kind of focused on our own. We don't even think about. I mean, we my last year at Texas, we got upset in the first round of the tournament. You just won the Big Ten tournament, Big Twelve tournament. We just won the Big 12 tournament and UCLA was somewhere there. Like we, I think we would have played them if we would have won. Um, they were first four, weren't they? Were they first four that year? Is that the year they went to the final four? That's the year they went to the final four. They're, they're first four. Um, but it, it, you know, and people were picking us to go to the final four that year. And man, we had a bad game. I mean, we had, our, we had three terrific guards, Andrew Jones, Matt Coleman, Courtney Ramey. I believe they combined for 18 turnovers, <laughs> like, like the three of them. Uh, so it's like there's so many things. And you talk about like how you stay grounded as a coach. You don't control all the like you do. You do your best. I mean, you do everything you can. But I think that's one of the things I've come to really, really enjoy about coaching is the challenge of learning to let go of some of the things that you don't control. How do you, how do you, um, how do you handle that with, I don't know, fans, media, bosses, pressure in that people lose all perspective on the year you actually had because the only thing that they can remember is the final game? Yes. Well, Blaine Taylor, who's, a, I, I think, a really good coach, a coach at Old Dominion yep. uh, when I was at VCU. He, he had this really 
it, there's a rivalry VCU and Old Dominion. So yeah, he had this kind of dry sense of humor and he would say things and he was just such a likable guy that he could kind of get away with saying, you know, things that a jerk would say, but he's a great guy. No, I know uh, he is. Yeah. He's been at UC Irvine here. And, and so he says, after we go to the final four, he made this comment. And it was, it's really insightful. He said the NCAA tournament has a way of making rock stars out of ordinary people. And he was trying to kind of, you know, a little bit of a slight on us, but I got at it. the same time, like he's got a point, like it, 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 our sport is interesting because you could go 31 and 0 in a regular season, even win your conference tournament. But, you know, if you, if you don't do this, then, you know, you looked at differently, or like you said, you can sneak in, you can just get in and you can make a run and you looked at a certain way. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily fair or right, but that's just how it is. It is how it is. All right. Until next time, I appreciate it. You let me know when you got a window. We'll keep moving down. This stuff is this stuff is awesome. Thanks for joining me. You got it, man. Thanks for having me. All right, that's that's part three. Part four is coming. Don't worry. Shaka's amazing with his time. And uh we're gonna get to Texas. We're gonna get to Marquette. We're going to get to him now, all in due time. Uh, also, a little note for you. We did a couple hours with Tyler Hansborough. That's coming very, very soon as well. Reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily. It's uh, 3 to 5 Eastern time, 12 to 2 Pacific. We have a In the Bonus podcast, which is really cool. A um, lot, lot of great stuff. But uh, thank you so much for listening, and obviously thank you to Shaka for his time and his honesty. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is all ball. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.